Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Helliker, and with us today is our guest, Dr. David Farber from Temple University, and the author of this intriguing and timely book, Taken Hostage, The Iran Hostage Crisis and America's First Encounter with Radical Islam. David, welcome to Book Chat. Thanks, thanks very much. Uh, David, this is, the, of course, the 25th anniversary of the Iranian hostage crisis in which 66 prisoners mostly were uh, kept for 444 days. Uh, your book, of course, adds an important new dimension because it was written after 9-11, and you view this, as you say, as the first encounter with radical Islam. What did we learn about radical Islam from the hostage crisis, and what have we forgotten about it? Yeah, that's a really tough question. What we learned was that there was such a thing as radical Islam. Go back to 1979, and Americans were completely unaware of the force of political Islam in the world. I think most Americans were unaware that there was an Islamic religion of importance in the world. Those were different times. We've Absolutely. had 25 years to get used to the idea that there is this new force in the world. I think even today though, this is a lesson Americans are still coming to grips with, trying to understand a force that is in so many ways foreign to our own understanding of how the world works. Like, it, it seems to me, I, remembering the crisis, that once it was over, we sort of <clears throat> forgot about it and thought it was an aberration. Uh, radicalism, but it really wasn't. Yeah, that's right. I think nowadays, if you look back, and it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that 25 years ago, this was seen as a kind of one-off. Here was this bizarre encounter America had with this force that no one had really ever seen before, radical Islamic fundamentalists. It was a new term. And in some ways, because of the spectacular aspects of what went on in the Middle East, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the war between Iran and Iraq, the continuing travails of the Palestinian people's conflict with the Israelis, we in the United States were able to bracket this experience with Iran and with Iranians' attempts to foment an Islamic revolution in the Persian Gulf. So we were able to put it aside. Now we see that in some ways we've had a 25-year-long encounter with radical Islam, and it has borne some some fruit that perhaps we wish we had not been able to pluck. Right, maybe we'll, <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, you mentioned that you were had access to some declassified documents that some of the earlier authors on this topic haven't had. What, what type of documents uh, were these that you were able to research? I was able to spend a lot of time down in the Carter Library in Atlanta, which are the official papers of President Jimmy Carter. And over the last three years or so, a number of the National Security Council documents State Department documents, papers of the president himself, all of these have become declassified. And so for the first time, we're able to look at what did Zbigniew Brzezinski, the national security advisor, tell Jimmy Carter? What did Jimmy Carter write on the, on the notations around the memos he was receiving from his staff, from Hamilton Jordan, his chief of staff, from the ambassadorial telegrams he was getting? So there's these marvelous doodles by Jimmy <laughs> Carter right on these documents. And yeah, no one else has been able to research these until I was able to get down there and see these declassified documents. So it gave us some new insights into what happened and why it happened. Well, you certainly book makes very good use of those uh, documents. Uh, of course, if we look back to the uh, late 1970s, the hostage crisis wasn't the only crisis. It seemed like a very troubled time for America. Can you kind of set the uh, stage for us and tell us what was going on in America at that time? One of the reasons I think that the Iranian hostage crisis became such a focal point for the American people was that it was not by any means the only problem Americans faced. It was in some ways the symbol, I think, of so many Americans' sense that they had lost control over their own national destiny and maybe their own personal destiny. 
Remember, this is the time of the energy crisis. Okay. This is a time when unemployment is rampant in the so-called Rust Belt, when people are losing their jobs in steel and other industrial industries. This is a time when inflation has taken control of Americans' lives so that home mortgages are not at 4 5 6%, but are at 18 19 20%, making home ownership something most Americans suddenly felt they couldn't do. This is also a time when Saigon had just fallen to the, Viet to the North Vietnamese. So we saw with a kind of a dagger that we'd lost control over our own foreign policy. So this was an era of crises. This particular one, I think, symbolized so many things gone awry in America's life. Interesting. Uh, with all the problems we faced back then, why did the hostage crisis elicit such a strong emotional response from the public? I think hostage taking still works, perhaps horribly enough to focus people's attention on the human dimensions of what is often a kind of abstract set of problems. So, okay, I say Americans are suffering from economic problems. They got energy crises. They got problems uh, controlling their own foreign policy. These are abstractions. Politicians, intellectuals, policymakers, they can settle around these issues. But for most Americans, it takes something almost more visceral, something at the gut. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, November 4th, 1979, you've got these pictures being flashed back from Tehran of people burning American flags screaming death to Carter. And there are, at that point, there were 66 Americans held hostage by people who looked like they came out of a medieval pageant play. Proverbial bad guys had our people. And this was something that just tore at Americans. It was personal. Yeah. Interesting comment you make in your book. Your book, you, you say Ronald Reagan now, was one of the few politicians who understood America's sense of patriotism. Uh, how did he view the public response in the context of patriotism and how did he capitalize on it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, you go back to the 1970s, even to the early 1980s, and conventional wisdom in the United States had become uh, Americans are cynical, Americans have lost all respect for their main institutions, and Americans are really just sort of burrowing into a kind of selfish existence. Remember, there's all those kind of phrases like the me decade. Mm -hmm. There was a bestseller called The Culture of Narcissism. Christopher Lash. Christopher yeah. Lash wrote that book. Yeah. So there was this tremendous sense, oh, oh, Americans have lost these kind of unifying bonds that create us as a nation. Reagan, sometimes seen as a simple guy, also had a kind of intuitive sense that something else was going on then. And I think what he believed, and it proved out, was that, yeah, some of that's true. Some of those claims are true. But Americans still held on to a sense of, national patriotic understanding of their country. They still had an idealism about them. And he saw the hostage crisis as indicative of that. Here were Americans rallying around these few dozen lost Americans, waving flags, putting yellow ribbons around trees to show their mm -hmm. patriotism, their commitment to getting these men and women back. He said, yeah, there's still something about Americans that they want this country to be unified. They believe in this country. And he bet his presidency that he could figure out how to animate that spirit. It's interesting. Uh, Reagan was, was indeed a very perceptive politician. Uh, how about Carter? Did he understand that this was a sense of patriotism too, or was he just so embattled by the whole situation? I think Carter had a harder time getting at that vision thing. And of course, he's embattled at this point. He's embattled in his own quest to win his own party's nomination. The incumbent Democratic president almost didn't win his party's renomination. So he was facing that kind of battle. He was facing the need to face all these economic and energy crisis policies. 
So I think he had a hard time stepping back. I mean, I, I blame him to some extent in the book for not being able to look at the bigger picture, not be able to see how he could have managed this problem more effectively, but instead he got lost in it, as people have accused him of getting lost into so many other policy predicaments. Right. And uh, let's take a look at the other main figure in this whole crisis, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm -hmm. uh, you note that his rise, I think you call it, it was an example of the chickens coming home to roost. Mm -hmm. uh, how so? Well, this is one of those issues that Americans sometimes have a hard time with, which is the asymmetry of memory between what we in the United States think is important and what people around the world sometimes think is important. For most Americans, the Iran hostage crisis, November 1979, came out of nowhere. Oh my gosh, why are these people doing this to our citizens? The Iranians saw this as, I don't know, the third act in a long drama that they had been playing between the United States and themselves. In 1953, long ago, under the Eisenhower administration, the CIA had helped overthrow the duly elected prime minister of Iran. Most we had put yeah. in his stead, the Shah Pahlavi, mm -hmm. to sit on the peacock throne and rule that nation as essentially a dictator. He was our dictator. Right. Most Americans didn't know that, didn't care, didn't pay attention, weren't aware of it. The CIA had done this secretly after all. Iranians knew this. They were furious with us. We'd interfered in their nation. The Ayatollah Khomeini was one of the figures, not the only one, who helped roil the waters again about the need for the Iranian people to gain control of their own destiny. And he was able to point out that the main culprit in preventing them from gaining control of their own destiny was that great Satan, the United States of America. So they saw things very differently than we did. Right. Now, Khomeini was in exile at this time, wasn't he, when the Shah, he was, in, was he in France or was he? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Khomeini had been exiled out of the country by the Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. The Shah was too scared <sighs> to make a martyr out of him. He had made martyrs out of many other dissidents. Khomeini was too popular to, to dare risk that. So first he threw him into Iraq, Iraqis eventually had him go to France, and from France he was able to continue fomenting an Islamic revolution against the Shah's reign, a successful revolution. Good. Of course, uh, well, we've talked about Khomeini. I guess I keep mispronouncing his name. I apologize. My Arabic's not too good either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, the, another key figure is President Jimmy Carter. Uh, from, of course, the American standpoint, the key figure. Uh, now, how did Carter, for instance, justify the tyranny of Shah when he himself had based his whole campaign around human rights? Yeah, this is one of those things where principle and interest kind of come into conflict, and any policymaker is going to face this predicament. Don't forget, the United States in the 1970s, in the midst of this huge energy crisis, the price of oil had skyrocketed. Back in 1974, 1973-1974, Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries had created an energy boycott against the United States. The Shah of Iran had not participated in that boycott. He had continued to sell us oil. He was a good guy. He had been friendly to the United States, not surprisingly, since 53 mm -hmm. when we helped put him in power. He was our guy. So Carter had to kind of look things at a very practical level and say, well, we need the Shah. We need him very badly because of his control over oil. We also need him because he was being good to Israel, which was another important policy predicament for the Americans at that time, how to solve this Middle East crisis. So for all these reasons, Carter basically put the human rights problems the Iranians had on the back burner to be generous, way in the back, 
and focus instead on the need we had in realpolitik terms and in oil terms for the continuing reign of the Shah of Iran. So we had made our bedfellow, mm -hmm. the Shah of Iran. This was going to make it real difficult when the Iranian people rose up and threw him out. Right. Uh, do you think, is there any kind of similarity you, you think between how current President Bush views Iraq and how Carter viewed Iran? Well, how, how, I think what, what's similar between what Bush feels about the predicament of Iraq and what Carter felt about the problems in Iran was that American policymakers always have to balance dealing with the realities they face and the possibilities that because we're an immense power in the world, we can transform the reality that we confront. Carter had chosen to follow conventional wisdom and stayed allied with the Shah of Iran. I think what President Bush has decided and successfully bet his first term on was that he could transform the culture of the Middle East, that he bet, well, we don't have to deal with the reality on, on, on the ground. We'll change it. We'll make it what we want. We'll bring democracy and freedom to the Middle East. Conventional wisdom's wrong. Now, whether we succeed in that mission is uh, very, very much up in the air. But in that sense, Carter and Iran, Bush and Iraq have chosen very different paths in that region. Interesting. Uh, of course, there were some other players that were uh, pretty fascinating and had an important ro roles. We had the Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State, and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Right. Was he head of the Security Council? That's right. He was the National Security Advisor. Advisor National. Now, uh, what was their relationship like, and, and what? how did the hostage crisis uh, change that? One of the fun things of writing about a history book and hopefully reading a history book is that you do see these kind of human dramas. I mean, life's played out in contingencies. It isn't like it's all known in advance. And you have these two guys back in the 70s, Secretary of State Vance and National Security Advisor Brzezinski, warring over the soul or perhaps just the head of Jimmy Carter. And they both saw the world differently. Brzezinski was a real action intellectual. He thought of this transformative power of the American people. He wanted Carter to take chances push our agenda hard. Vance was more cautious, more a practitioner of facing the world as it was rather than transforming it into what it could be. Mm -hmm. uh, Brzezinski thought that we could keep the Shah of Iran in power. He thought that we could maintain American presence in the Middle East through our policies. Vance was more interested in trying to work with change in the region as he saw it already occurring. Uh, Vance loses. Famously, I think, gosh, maybe he's the last guy to have done it in the United States government. He resigned over policy disagreements with Jimmy Carter. Carter decided eventually to create a military rescue of the hostages, right. April 1980. Vance said, we do not need to militarize this conflict. He said that in advance. He said, if you go ahead with this, I respectfully will resign as Secretary of State. Carter went ahead with it. Vance resigned. Brzezinski was now in control of foreign policy in all fundamental ways under Carter's leadership. Earlier on, we were talking about some of the travails Carter faced during that last year. But let's talk about the presidential election in 1980 now. What events do you feel led specifically to his loss? And was the crisis the most important reason for his defeat, do you think? Yeah, a lot of ink's been spilt over this question of what would have happened if come October 1980, Jimmy Carter had managed to free, at that point, the 52 hostages still held in Tehran. Could that have turned the election around? Carter himself claims in his own memoirs that it was the coverage of the one-year anniversary of the hostage-taking, the day before the election, 
which ruined his chances to win the presidency again. Reagan had a pretty good lead for a while. The last few weeks of the election, Carter had started to come back in the polls. Remember, the election was fairly close in the final analysis. Mm -hmm. So one doesn't really know what would have happened if Carter had pulled off the famous October surprise and brought those hostages home. He had a lot of other problems on his plate. And I don't think it probably would have been enough to get him victory. Hmm. Uh, of course, then Carter's decision to let the Dine Shah of Iran in America didn't exactly play well with the Iranians. Uh, so if that was the catalyst, first of all, was it the catalyst that led to the takeover? And if so, what did the Iranian hostage takers hope to accomplish by their taking of the hostages? Yeah, now we're going back in time to, to way before. Right. And what happened is, yeah. re remember, you got to sort of think through what's going on. 1979, a revolution happens in Iran. I mean, we're not used to revolutions happening around the world. I mean, you got to think France, you got to think Russia. This was a huge event, and it came again as a surprise to the American people. It came as a surprise to the Carter government. What then happens is, January 1979, the Shah of Iran has to tuck his tail between his legs and take off. He has to leave Iran right before he probably would have been killed. At that point, the question becomes, what do you do with the Shah of Iran? He wanted to come to the United States, though not at first. He thought maybe there'd be a military coup and he would be able to bring himself back as leader of that country. So he, he hid out in Morocco for a little while. That didn't work. Clearly, he wasn't going to get his power back. He told the American government, I want to come to the United States. I got several million dollars, probably several hundred million dollars there. Let me home. And the Carter government hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. They knew it would be a problem if they let him come. They knew the Iranian government, the revolutionary government, would be furious. Uh, it took several months of negotiation led by David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger and other big, big men of the American establishment. Finally, and this is a story I tell in some mm -hmm. detail in the book. Mm -hmm. It's a really wild, cool story. And then suddenly, Carter learns that the Shah is very ill. He needs hospitalization. The best hospitals in the world, of course, must be in the United States. The Shah is allowed to come to the United States. Well, immediately, immediately, the Iranian populace went to the streets. And the target for their anger, their frustration was, guess who? The diplomats hanging out at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Within days, they took that embassy over. All right, so we had um, 66 hostages were originally taken. How, during the 444 days, were they right. treated? Well, you know, it's a relative story. Yeah. Uh, compared to what we've been seeing in the news lately coming out of Iraq, you know, they were having a club med vacation. Nobody's head got chopped off. Nobody got beaten to a pulp in, in, in the horrible relativity of what terrorism can be. They were okay. I, some of them were threatened. Some of them thought they were going to get killed. Many of them were manacled for days at a time. I mean, they had no cakewalk to say the least, but they were safe and, and they all came out of it okay. I mean, again, this is in the relative right. nightmare of hostage taking. They did okay. Were uh, in the course of your research, were you able to talk to any of them? You know, I didn't. There? I didn't mm -hmm. talk to them. Um, many of them are around. You can talk to them. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm a historian, and I wanted to look at the record. And I yes. saw their letters. I read letters they wrote home. I read the exit interviews they made. I saw their official communication with the government. I guess I was more interested in seeing how they felt at the time than how in memory, right. 25 years later, they looked back at it. I think that's fascinating, but it's a different story. Different perception they different can have story. altogether, right? Yeah. Um, please talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about when you alluded to the 1980 attempted hostage rescue. Yeah. Uh, what, how did that happen and what was the outcome of that? Well, one of the possibilities to end this hostage taking from day one, 
uh, literally from November 5th, was a military rescue. And the Americans had started planning it immediately. Uh, in some ways, remembering back to what the Israelis had been able to do in Entebbe, where they'd rescued a plane load of hostages out of Uganda that some uh, Palestinians had taken hostage. So we sort of knew about this. And we had set up our own Delta Force, a group of highly trained commandos who could do these kinds of things, led by a guy named James Beckwith, one of the great, great fighting men in American history. And weeks went by, months went by, negotiations had been tried. They weren't working. Clearly, dead ends had been reached. It wasn't clear what to do next. Brzezinski had argued strongly that America had to be strong in the world, and he urged Carter to take a military solution. So I think it's April 24th, we launched, America launched a mission to get those men and women out of hostage, uh, out of their captivity in Tehran. That was a horrible tragedy. Uh, bad luck as much as anything. There was a sandstorm in the desert. It took out some of the helicopters that were needed. Uh, the mission was aborted because there weren't enough helicopters to take the commandos to the embassy. Again, just terrible luck when those helicopters that were still working tried to, to leave the desert that they had been situated in. Uh, one of the planes hit, one of the airplanes hit a jet, hit a helicopter. Eight American soldiers died. It, it was a fiasco. It didn't work. Right. And of course, you said this was the event that caused Cyrus fans to resign as Secretary yeah. of State. Right. Uh, why did Khomeini free the hostages when he did, finally, after all that time? Because he wanted to. That's the unfortunate answer because he wanted to. 444 days later, he waited famously until Jimmy Carter was no longer president. Within minutes of Reagan's taking over the presidency, he released the hostages. You've got to remember, for Khomeini and for the Revolutionary Council, this hostage-taking fit beautifully their internal needs. This was a unifier for them. This brought the country together. They needed this politically. They were a revolutionary government. They had no clear legitimacy. So okay. turning the U.S. as an enemy, holding these hostages, that became a vehicle for the legitimating of Khomeini's revolutionary government. It worked for them. It sure as heck hurt us and Jimmy Carter. Right. Uh, you say the hostage crisis was a wake-up call for America? How right. so? Well, it was a wake-up call only partially heated. Again, this was a revolutionary movement, the takeover of Iran by fundamentalist Islamic radicals. And for a while, American government officials started to think, well, what does this mean? Does this change everything in the Persian Gulf? Should we, should we rethink our policies? But in the end, as I suggested earlier, that notion, that hope that maybe we should change didn't, didn't pan out. I mean, remember, we're still fighting the Cold War with the Soviet Union at this time. Right. That, that's the paradigm in which everything's supposed to fit. Right. So Reagan took over the government. He pushed away from rethinking the force of Islam, and focused on Soviet communism. I mean, maybe it was a necessity. 1991, right. Soviet communism will fall a decade later. But we put again on the back burner this rising problem, this rising concern, this rising force of Islamic fundamentalism. And of course, 25 years later, we're still living with that force in the world, and we don't still have a clear policy to meet it. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your excellent book, Taken Hostage, The Iran Hostage Crisis and America's First Encounter with Radical Islam. This is Book Chat, and I'm Carl Halliker.